Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. If I ask you to imagine Elizabethan England, I'm quite certain that somewhere in your mental image will be a sword. It may well be hanging from the girdle around a gentleman's waist, sheathed in a scabbard. Perhaps the gentleman you imagine is in the court of Queen Elizabeth I. Perhaps he engages in a duel with another man in some friendly, or not so friendly, sporting combat. Your imagination would not be wrong. Such swordplay was indeed one of the martial arts that gentlemen enjoyed in the Elizabethan period. But let's get into some of the details. What would the swords have looked like? How long, how heavy would they have been? What sort of fighting did men engage in? Were the rules? How were they taught? And given that swordplay could lead to serious injury and death, was it regulated by the government in any way? And did ordinary people participate in such pastimes, or was it just the elites? To learn all about the intricacies of Elizabethan swordplay, I'm delighted to welcome Jacob H. Deacon, a doctoral student at the Institute for Medieval Studies at the University of Leeds. He's currently researching the transmission of martial knowledge in England between 1400 and 1600. In addition to his doctoral studies, Jacob has worked with the Deutsche Klinge Museum, exploring a collection of sabres. He undertook a fellowship at the University of Trera, and he recently became the assistant editor for Acta Periodica Jullatorum, a journal for historical martial arts. And if all that wasn't enough, he's also been busy assisting with an Arts and Humanities Research Council-funded project exploring the joust as performance. And he's also been busy delivering talks on fencing, tournaments, arms and armour for organisations including the Royal Armouries Museum in Leeds. Jacob, welcome to Not Just the Tudors. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me, Susanna. It's an absolute pleasure. Now, we're going to be talking about swords, and I think kind of the first thing we need to say is what a sword was. It might seem strange, but if you go to the Royal Armouries in Leeds, for example, you'll see a wide range of weapons that we might think of as swords that come in a range of shapes and sizes. Can you clarify for us what a sword was in Elizabethan England and what it was not? Of course. Well, a sword can be one of many things. When we think of a sword in Elizabethan or Tudor England today, we probably most thinking of a rapier, this long double-edged sword with a complex hilt that is primarily used for these thrusting attacks in the lunge, but is equally capable of being used for cutting. 
I think the reason we so primarily associate the rapier with Elizabethan and Tudor England isn't just because it was an incredibly popular weapon then, but today when we look at Shakespeare, it's always the rapier that's being used, even if that's perhaps a little anachronistic for the play. But there are many other types of swords being used at the time. Particularly popular in England as well is something called a back sword. Now this is a single-edged sword. Like the rapier, it has a guard for the knuckles. That's the term back sword because it only really has one edge and the way in which it's constructed means it's sort of a triangular blade. Other swords include two-handed swords. These are a continuation from the medieval two-handed sword or long sword, some people call it. And all three swords are used in different contexts in England. The rapier, most famously used in the duel, but also for self-defense. And back swords, also a civilian weapon, but also used in the military. Two-handed swords, on the other hand, not really something you will tend to find people carrying around on the streets. They're more used in a military context, but also as weapons in the hands of fencers and professional fencing masters. So would a two-handed sword be that much heavier, and that's why it's not used on a day-to-day basis? No, if anything, this is quite a common misconception we have, that two-handed swords are these great lumbering weapons that render the wielder to be quite slow in combat, while rapiers are these dainty, flexible weapons that can strike at a moment's notice. Both weapons, when used in the hands of a professional, are quick and deadly. If they were slow and ponderous, people wouldn't really have used them. If you think about the weight of the weapons, there's really not that much to distinguish between them either. A lot of rapiers from the time, often between two and a half to four pounds, so not really much lighter than two-handed swords. So is the difference in the adornment of the hilt or in the formation of the blade? Yes, it's mostly down to the formation of the hilts. A two-handed sword has the name because it has two hands on it, whereas the rapier, again, the hilt is really only long enough to put one hand on the blade. So most of the differences are coming from the hilt's length. I was fascinated to learn from your work about England's long history of martial arts. When most people think of those words, they think of the Far East. So can you describe what martial arts look like in medieval and early modern England. Martial arts or martial arts instruction has had a complicated history in England. Throughout the medieval period before the 16th century, fencing instruction is very heavily regulated. The fencing schools are banned from within the city walls of London from the late 12th century onwards. You occasionally find people willing to risk the punishment that this entails. So in 1311, there's a man called Roger Lesgermasur and he's sent to prison for running the stool, to which he has drawn the sons of respectable men, as the sources say, much to the wasting of their property and injury of their characters. At some point, this series of prohibitions seems to diminish, probably by the middle of the 15th century. At this time, there is a wire drawer by the name of John Cotton, who is brought before an inquiry to establish whether or not he was involved in a series of attacks on Lombard merchants. And he's able to say that, oh, I wasn't involved with this assault, but I had been with the perpetrators beforehand, teaching them how to fight with the two-handed sword. 
at that point, you really have to ask, how innocent are you if you're teaching criminals how to fight just before they go off to do a crime? It doesn't sound like the best defence ever, does it, really? No, but he's completely exonerated from this, and they say, all right, it's a fair excuse, you can be on your way. Why had there been such hostility to teaching people how to use swords? I know this is before the period we're mostly talking about, but it's interesting that there was this kind of culture that was opposed to it. I'm not entirely sure it's an attempt to ban people learning how to fight, but it's more about where they can fight. So there's all sorts of legislation that says what sort of arms and armor people from various degrees of society should earn. So it's expected that you should know how to use your weapons. The problem is the environment in which you are gaining these skills. The prohibition banning fencing is always quite specific to say, well, you can't learn within the city walls of London. And I think that's probably quite understandable that you don't want armed groups of men congregating within the city walls. You find similar bans on wrestling as well. The authorities are quite concerned about large violent gatherings just spilling out in a way that no one can really anticipate. So if we use the term martial arts, we are talking explicitly about what we might think of as fencing or swordplay. Martial arts is definitely more of a modern term. I think it's 20th century in its origin. It's definitely not one used at the time. Instead, you find people using terms such as buckler play. Fencing as a term doesn't really come into existence until the 15th and the 16th century. But yes, martial arts definitely encompasses swordplay, fencing, wrestling. Maybe you could include archery as a martial art, but maybe that's where I'd draw the line personally. So in the 16th century, why are men participating in swordplay? Was it an attempt to be battle-ready? Is this about military preparation? Is it about masculine honour? Is it about entertainment and passing the time? I think you've really hit the nail on the head there. There are all sorts of reasons why someone might choose to go and learn how to fight, just as today with a fencing class. There's always going to be a military aspect to it perhaps, but equally you find people having to rely on being able to defend themselves in more of a civilian connotation. If you're a gentleman, the ability to use your rapier is going to be important for a dueling context, but also just for self-defense on the streets. Equally, there are people who learn fencing because it is an entertaining thing to do. But this isn't without risks. There's a wonderful text called The Pain of Pleasure by an author called Anthony Monday, who publishes it in 1580. And he's talking about all sorts of delights that people engage in, tennis, music, beauty. And he's just highlighting the dangers of all of these. And one of the ones that he highlights is fencing. He says there's a need to learn how to fight, but practicing fencing carries all sorts of risks with it. He says, Now, sir, this joy and art of great defense, which of offense may rather well be named, is not obtained without some great expense, nor yet without some limb or other lamed, except by hap you chance to scape the worth and let you part then with your noddle burst. And let me but demand this question now, will you be pleased with him that break your pate? Or will you not, almost you care not how, seek your revenge and bear him deadly hate? So there's danger in fencing because you could get hit, but also 
if you accidentally injure someone in fencing practice, maybe they're going to try and get even at some point in the future as well. So fencing is a popular pastime, but not one without its dangers. I've always thought about fencing as a sport that has roots on the continent of Europe. Do we know how it came to England? Fencing itself doesn't necessarily come to England because sword play has been part of life for hundreds of years at this point. But what does come to England, particularly in the 16th century, is the rapier, which we've already mentioned. The rapier isn't an English invention. It really picks up popularity on the continent. And in the 16th century, you start to have a growing fascination with all things Italian. And this is really why the rapier finds such a home in England, perhaps. As you have gentlemen who start to become more influenced with Italian culture, they want to use Italian weapons, such as the rapier. And Italian fencing masters themselves are then able to come over to England and make quite a career out of teaching gentlemen at the court how to fence with the rapier, much to the chagrin of native English fencing masters who really think that the Italian masters are treading on their toes. Tell me more. One wonderful example we have is an Italian gentleman called Rocco Bonetti. Rocco comes to England in 1568. He marries Eleanor Burbage in 1572 of the Burbages. And by 1578, he's gained the freedom of the City of London as the result of his wealthy benefactor, Robert Dudley, the Earl of Leicester, and one of Elizabeth's favourite courtiers. Quite why he comes to England in the first place isn't exactly easy to figure out. Is he coming over as a fencing master for Dudley? Perhaps. He seems to travel around a lot for him. There's some questions today that perhaps he's involved in espionage work. But either way, by the 1580s, Bonetti has fallen on hard times. His wife has died. He's been in legal conflict with her family over her estate. And so he establishes a school in Blackfriars in London, which caters to really wealthy gentlemen. We have a really good description of it, actually, from an English gentleman called George Silver, who very much is opposed to these Italian fencing masters and their rapiers. And he really paints a picture of this school. He says that the gentlemen students have their coats of arms hanging around the rooms, and underneath that, their rapiers, their daggers, their gloves of mail. There are benches and stools, so men can sit all around the stool to watch Rocco teaching. He discusses that Rocco is charging 20, 40, 50, even 100 pounds to these gentlemen, where in comparison, the native English fencing masters are charging around 40 shillings-ish for a course. The room is incredibly sumptuously decorated. There are large square tables with green carpets done round with these broad, rich fringes of gold. There are places for people to write their letters. There's even a clock in here as well. It's really a fencing stool for London's elite. George Silver, not really a fan. He sort of is describing it more as a social club rather than a place for martial enterprise. Yes, it very much does have a sense of being a gentleman's club, doesn't it? Yes, and Rocco isn't the only one who successfully does this. Rocco is dead by 1587, but he's succeeded really by another Italian fencing master called Vincenzo Saviolo. 
Saviolo, much to the consternation of the native English masters of defense, is equally able to secure very influential clients for himself. So whereas Bonetti is supported by the Earl of Leicester, Saviolo is then championed by Robert Devereux, the Earl of Essex. So really, it's the cream of the crop of English aristocracy who are patronising these Italian fencing masters. And I suppose Devereux, the Earl of Essex, is the inheritor to Robert Dudley. So there's a sense in which they've almost got a family line of patronising these fencing masters and also therefore in some way kind of attaching the elite of London to themselves through their participation in this training, perhaps. Yes, exactly. But this is really a beneficial relationship for these fencing masters. So Rocco Benetti is subject to quite a bit of violent abuse when he comes over to England. In 1578, when there's a request for him to be granted the freedom of the city, there are also complaints about him being daily vexed by common fencers who offer him violence in the streets. He complains to the Privy Council about the injurious dealings and the behaviour of the common fencers of the City of London towards him, and he even names two men, one Francis and one Isaac. These men are almost definitely two men called Francis Calvert and Isaac Kennard, two members of the Company of Masters of Defence who dwelt in London at the same time as Bonetti. Yes, that's really interesting you mentioned that because a significant focus of your work is on this company of the noble science of defence known as the Masters of Defence for short. Can you tell us a bit about this company, when and where it was established, who was involved, what its purpose and existing was? Well, for all intents and purposes, the Masters of Defence or the Company of Masters of Defence are the closest thing to a fencing guild that ever really exists in early modern England although they never really attained this lofty official status of being a guild or being a delivery company. They're not out to teach soldiers, but civilians, how to use a wide range of weapons. And we don't know when they were originally created, but by 1540, they managed to convince King Henry VIII to hand over to them some remarkable powers. They receive a commission to inquire and search in all parts of England, Wales and Ireland, for anyone who is a scholar of the science of defence and who is teaching without having a sufficient licence, so a licence to actually teach people how to fight. If they find anyone who's breaking this monopoly, they then have the power to take these people before the nearest justice of the peace, who then has to be bound in sureties not to repeat his offence, and if it happens again, then there will be a jail sentence. We try to bring you cold, hard facts on Gone Medieval, but January is all about mysteries. Impossible riddles from medieval history that defy efforts to solve them. How did the presence of a mysterious saviour from the East turn into devastation? What secrets does a book written in an unknown code hide? Did kings and princes really die when history has assumed they did? I'm Matt Lewis, and in January, we'll see how close we can get to answering the unanswerable and ask how these mysteries might be solved in the future. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. unearth any details about the sort of types of people who join the Masters of Defence? Is this an expensive club <laughs> like those run by Bonetti and Saviolo? Or is this something that other people could afford as well? Not at all. The Masters of Defence are much more of an ordinary society of fencers compared to Bonetti and Saviolo. We know that there were some gentlemen members of the company who just really joined as students who wanted to learn how to fence. We have a diary belonging to a gentleman called John North, and he complains in his diary that his servant is continuing to try and tempt him into going to fencing classes and spend money there. But for those who actually really want to advance in the company of Masters of Defense and become a master or a provost, there's much more of a humble origin here. For instance, there's Richard Tarleton, who's appointed master in 1587. Tarleton isn't a member of the gentry, but rather he's an actor and, interestingly, Queen Elizabeth's favourite clown. I was going to say, I knew the name. I was like, Tarleton, he's a fool. He is, yes, but then just shows up in this list of members of the Masters of Defence and it's like, ah, interesting. He doesn't become a master in the same way as other people do. Perhaps we'll come to that later. But his own teacher, a man called Henry Naylor, is a servant to the Earl of Leicester Two other masters, John Blinkensop and John Goodwin, are servants in the employ of another baron. Richard Best is a gunner at the Tower of London. Other members are yeomen of the guard. There are glovers, there are jerkin makers. So being a member of the Masters of Defence and being a fencing master in Elizabethan England isn't really a full-time profession for most of these men. In fact, in the surviving records we have for the Masters of Defence, we have a list of masters and their students, and there are many men that once they reach the rank of master, they don't really appear to have taken on any of their own students themselves. So if we go back to this idea of why you learn to fence, some people are learning to fence so they can teach others, perhaps, but that's not really the done thing. 
even in the 16th century, however, fencing as a profession is a little dodgy. Fences come up in various vagrancy acts, and so they're being compared to minstrels, jugglers, peddlers, and tinkers. Really, if you're a fencing master, it's not considered to be proper full-time employment. There is a sense that these are people almost throughout society. We don't really have any labourers here or people of the absolute bottom end of society, but you've got glovers in there and jerkin makers. It's the middling sort and above. Yes, definitely. Can I just ask about rules? That suggests there weren't any rules about who could learn sword play. Was there any regulation of sword play generally in England at the time? Sword play isn't particularly regulated within Elizabethan England at the time. There are, of course, limits on where and when you can fight, but I haven't come across any legislation that determines who can and can't actually learn how to fight. That's not to say that there aren't several related areas of the law. For instance, in the middle of the 16th century, you start to have legislation on the length of the rapier you're allowed to carry, part of successive sumptuary laws, and the masters of defence themselves have a long list of conditions that members have to swear to when they reach a new rank in the company, which really sets out who you should be teaching, how you should behave, how you should treat other members of the company. Is that all fairly common sense stuff, or is there anything particularly interesting in those rules and regulations? Or The rules that the Masters of Defence have are particularly illuminating, actually. I think the first thing to note is that they indicate that the Masters of Defence really want to be taken seriously. They show us that they're organised as a guild or a livery company. They already theoretically have this power of search, which they never really seem to have been able to enforce too much. There are all sorts of similarities with the oaths of other guilds. They have to start by swearing to be true subjects to Queen Elizabeth and to her successors, to uphold the church. Not really something you'd necessarily associate with the art of fencing, but it is something that shows up in the oaths for other guilds and livery companies. As for particularly interesting conditions, I think one of my favourites probably relates to who you can and cannot teach. There's one that says, you shall not teach any suspect person as a murderer, a thief, or a common drunkard, or such as you know to be common quarrelers, nor to keep company with them, but to avoid all such, so nigh as you can. So there's not just a ban on teaching these people how to fence, but even really associating with them. And if we consider again the fact that fences are mentioned in these vagrancy acts, it almost appears as if it's an attempt to further remove the possibility for members of the company to sort of be in these situations that could bring down the reputation of the company or the art in general. At the same time, the fraternal bonds that the oath enforces is also interesting, particularly that says that if you know of any master of the science that has fallen into sickness, being in poverty, you shall put the masters in remembrance at all prizes and games and other assemblies. Again, quite a common aspect of oaths from other guilds. There's a great sense there of brotherhood then, isn't there? Looking after those of the company who have fallen on hard times and making sure that those you associate with are people of honour that you would want to be associated with and known for. Definitely. There's certainly a system of brotherhood here. 
but one which has a hierarchy to it as well. There are conditions which say you must be obedient to your master, but particularly the master who taught you how to fence. You're not to steal students from other masters, things like this, just to enforce good relations between members of the company. Did any of the masters of defence achieve fame at the time? Yes and no. Some became famous, others, I think, perhaps more infamous. The fencing master who becomes particularly well-known in the 1570s is Henry Naylor. In 1571, there's a dispute over the ownership of a manor and the surrounding lands in Kent. Both sides eventually agreed to resolve the issue by trial by battle, which is very particular by this point in time. The plaintiffs hire Henry Naylor, who was a master in the Company of Masters of Defence, and the defendant hires a man called George Thorne. The Chronicle of John Stowe tells us that when the two champions first meet, Thorne throws down a gauntlet that Naylor picks up. The two sides, eventually, before the day of the combat, agree to resolve the dispute peaceably, but they're still going to meet in the field to finish proceedings before a judge and to give proper legal protection to the defendant for the future. Stowe tells us that Henry Naylor really makes the most of his opportunity here to make an entrance and a name for himself. There's a large audience on scaffolds built just for this combat at Hothill Fields, just south of where St. James's Park is in London today. Naylor enters dressed in a doublet, gaily Gascoigne breeches, all of crimson satin, cut and raised. He has a hat of black velvet with a red feather and a band. Before him, there are drums and fifes playing. The gauntlet that was originally cast down by Thorn is born before Naylor upon a sword's point. He comes into the Palace of Westminster, halts in front of the door, goes back along the streets into the fields, and he stays there for a while. Thorn, it turns out, has already been in his tent for some time. The two are then finally brought to the lists, where they're going to do battle. The judges agree to the settlement reached by both parties. And at this point, the judge tells Henry to return George Thorne's gauntlet to him. And to this, Naylor answers that he's not going to give it back unless Thorne can win it from him. And then he challenges Thorne to play with him several bouts, just to show some pastime to the Lord Chief Justice and the others who are assembled there. So he's really trying to act the part here, but then Thorne, much quieter man, answers that he only came to fight. He was not going to play with Henry. I think that's so interesting, such an insight into this culture, because I had no idea that you could hire someone to fight on your behalf, and there could therefore be a, an industry, really, of professional swordsmen who would come and put on this show. It's like going to a boxing match. Definitely. Fencing is really quite a public thing in England at the time. Maybe not in the judicial sense here, but definitely going to watch fencing can be the done thing. The Masters of Defence actually put on quite a few exhibition bouts for Henry VIII and all of his children when they come to the throne themselves. But what is much more common, again, is when people in London can go to various taverns or theatres to watch something called a prize. 
Now, a prize, I argue, is when the masters of defence were most visible to London society. And what this is, is when a member of the company wants to advance from one rank to another. So you have scholars who are at the bottom, three scholars above this, provosts, and then masters. And the way in which you go from one rank to the other is by completing this prize, which is a fight against all comers of the company of masters on the stage. So you'll have to fight with a certain number of weapons, ranging from your back swords, your two-handed swords, your staff, sometimes a rapier and dagger, and you'll fight successive bouts against members of the company who are from the rank you want to join. So if you're a provost and you want to become a master, then you will fight against those who have already attained the rank of master. And these are really quite popular events to the point where in times of plague in the city, they're super spreader events because they take place in inns and taverns and theatres and they do draw large crowds. I'm always interested in asking people about their sources and some of the sources you've used for your work are fight books. Could you tell me a bit about these and what insights they give us? Fight books are the most important series of sources we have for studying historical martial arts. They first really start to appear in the 15th century. There's an earlier 14th century example, but in the 15th and the 16th century, they really become much more common. Fight books are textual and occasionally visual records of fencing technique. Several authors in the 16th century, when they are writing fight books, are claiming that they are how-to manuals. If you read this book, you can learn how to fence. Joseph Swetnam, one fencing master, says that if you read his book and practice it for 20 days, you can learn all the contents there is to know in it. Anyone who practices martial arts will, of course, tell you there's no way you can become an expert in a martial art in less than three weeks. It's ridiculous. It's a sales pitch. But for the historian today, they really represent the best way of understanding how people conceived of the art and how they approached actually how to fight, how to use these weapons in single combat. Now, given that some of these clubs seem quite elite, even if the Masters of Defence has a broader demographic, and given that you've just talked about literary sources in terms of learning about sword play, should we differentiate between the sword play that we've learned about so far today and the sort of things that ordinary people might have been doing? Or is it all really of one accord? That's difficult to tell just because we don't really have the sources for it. Similarly then, do we have any evidence of women involved in swordplay? Not particularly in late 16th century England. At least there are no female fencing masters. But fascinatingly, there are women that occasionally show up in the fight books themselves. The most wonderful example of this isn't 16th century, but does come from the first ever fight book, a German text often called 133, which is at the Royal Armouries in Leeds. This is an interesting manuscript that looks at how you fight with a sword and a buckler, a small round shield. And it's fascinating, firstly, because of the existence of it as the first fight book, but secondly, because of the people who are fighting in it. You'd probably expect it to be knights, but instead, the fences that are illustrated are a priest and a student. Students associated with urban violence for centuries, but priests less so. And right at the end of the manuscript, on a few folios, 
Instead, one of the fences is replaced with a woman, with a woman named Valpurgis. So it's showing the art of defence being handled not just by men, but also women. Oh, that's fantastic. That's a great example. When we started out talking, you mentioned that we would probably have come across rapiers in Shakespeare and swords come across in all sorts of plays and poetry and paintings of the period. Do you think the use of swords in these settings carry the same symbolism and meaning as the sword play we've learned about today? Yes, I definitely think so. Particularly sword play can carry some of the same conventions and learning how to fight. My favourite example of this actually comes from Hamlet. Now, in Hamlet, Laertes, his eventual opponent at the end, has gone off to Paris for a while, and his father Polonius sends a servant to Paris to see how his son is getting on. Now, in order for the servant to ingratiate himself with Laertes' friends, Polonius instructs him to let slip that he's seen Laertes drinking, swearing, quarrelling, and most outrageously of all, fencing, just so the friends don't suspect anything's up. Polonius describes these acts as wanton, wild, and usual slips, as our companions noted, and most known to youth and liberty. So really what that scene is saying to me is that, yes, perhaps being in a fencing stool is a little disreputable, but it's probably where you'd expect to find a young nobleman. So the same aspects are creeping into literary works as well. Finally, I can't help but notice that casually leaning against a mantelpiece behind you is a sword. And I know, of course, you've spent a lot of time studying the weapons and this kind of martial culture of swordplay in the Elizabethan period. But when you think about the modern day sport of fencing or use of swords today, and when you watch events like the Olympics, do you see threads of continuity between what was happening in the 16th century and today? Or has the modern sport changed out of all recognition? I do think that the modern sport definitely has changed out of recognition. The weapons are very different. The rule sets are different. But what there is today, actually, is quite a growing movement of people who are interested in looking at these fight books and the way in which weapons were used. And so you find a lot of people practicing something called historical European martial arts, or HEMA, where people will work from translations, transcriptions of these sources, and attempt to reconstruct what is actually written or shown on the page. There are, of course, limitations to what we can discover from these sources. We'll never perfectly be able to replicate what it was to fence in 16th century England. But with quite a lot of work, people really are starting to get a good approximation of what it might have meant to be fencing in the late 16th century. And presumably that means having to be restricted by clothing in the same way as people were in the late 16th century, if you're really going to use a rapier in the same way as someone did in the 1580s. Oh, yes, you wouldn't be practising this without the requisite safety gear. So similar to fencers wearing masks and jackets, but perhaps the masks have a little more resistance, not just to thrusts, but to cutting attacks coming in at you, and the jackets are quite a bit thicker as well. If you're wearing a 16th century jerkin or doublet... At least this is true of female clothing. Maybe it's not so true of men's clothing, which I haven't tried on. But there is a certain point above which you can't raise your arm, which would restrict the movement of a sword. So if one opponent is in 
16th century clothing and the other is in 21st century clothing, the modern person has a distinct advantage. Yes, that should definitely be the case. I'm not a clothing expert myself, but I think some people have been doing research into how your body moves differently when you wear clothing. It's definitely the case for armour. There are all sorts of techniques that you can and can't do when you're wearing a full suit of armour. Thank you so much for bringing to life this wonderfully detailed subject about swords and how they were used in this period. I do think the Masters of Defence would be a great name for a band and (laughs) we should look forward to hearing them play in the future. But so many interesting stories here and you've given us a real sense of the culture of the time. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you to my producer, Rob Weinberg, and researcher, Esther Arnott. And thank you to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit. If you haven't already done so, do sign up to our weekly newsletter, Tudor Tuesday, so that you never miss out on the history you love. There are details in the notes below this podcast. And please rate this podcast wherever you listen, now including on Spotify. And please send me your comments and suggestions for future podcasts via our Twitter feed at NotJustTudors or by email NotJustTheTudors at HistoryHit.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.